Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, I'm John Hulin Hill. I'm a producer here at Vox, and I'll be hosting The Weeds as we gear up for the midterms. And folks, let's get real for a second. America's got a problem. America, America has a problem. And no, not a Beyonce problem. We love Beyonce. In fact, we're still waiting for the visuals. America's got a polling problem. Our hyper-focus on polls has been complicating elections for years. Deja vu to 2016. Can we trust these polls? Of course, the most memorable polling gaffe was in 2016, when almost everybody got it wrong. 2016 presidential race ended last night with one final tectonic plate shifting 9.5 on the Richter scale earthquake. Well, my crystal ball has been shattered into atoms here. So how did the polls lead us astray? But 2016 wasn't the first election year with wildly off polling. Let's go a little further back, to 2012. The Romney campaign seems to have gone the other way. They've decided they just wouldn't believe the public polls. They kind of believed their own spin, and that's what kept them in the dark. We don't have all that much data right now, believe it or not. We don't have that much public data. The campaigns have a lot of information. We don't. That last voice you heard was Amy Walter. She's the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report. And she's here today to help us understand what we get wrong about polling. Hi, Amy. Hi. Also, she has really adorable dogs. They're so funny. They're like, I want to be on the podcast. Um, It's Eli and Dami. And they're super, super cute. But they are ridiculous. Okay, Amy, take us back to 2012. What made that election so different? 2012 was this watershed moment where, and I think 538 was the reason for this, where regular people, regular news consumers could have access to not just the data, because this data had been floating out there, right? The NBC Wall Street Journal had been around for a long time. So is CBS and ABC. There were new people that were in the business of polling. They were putting out data. But for the first time, we had something in 538 that aggregated all of that data and made it easy to search and understand for your non-political person, right? Your average news consumer could understand 
in essence, what all of this data was saying, because they took all the polls, they aggregated them, they had a something of a formula to be able to average it out so that every day you would click on their website and every day you would get an updated version of what are the polls saying about the approval rating of X candidate, about the competitiveness of a certain state at the presidential level, at the Senate level, where we see most of our polling. And then they put something else that we as human beings like to see, but we don't really understand very well, or at least we don't react to it in the way that we should, which is to put a percentage chance or to put a prediction on the chances of that state going a red direction or a blue direction, right? A probability. Humans are not very good at a number of things. One, risk, right? Yeah. We think we understand risk, but we're really, really bad at it, right? We'll say like, of course, I would never, ever do this you know, dangerous thing, right? I'm not going to jump out of an airplane or I'm not going to whatever other crazy thing you look at and you say, that seems really dangerous to drive 100 miles an hour on a really curvy road with ice on it. That's clearly risky. Yeah, okay, sure. Makes total sense. You know what else is really risky? You walking across the street looking at your phone. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And not looking at the fact that there's a car coming or a bike coming or somebody else coming at you. There's bigger likelihood you're going to get injured or die because you were looking at your phone, not because you were driving a million miles an hour on an icy road. So the other thing we're bad at besides risk is probability. So the weather person says there's an 80% chance of rain. What do you do? You expect it's going to rain, right? You carry an umbrella. And when it doesn't rain, after you canceled your plans to go outside and have your nice outdoor dinner party, you're really upset because you said there was an 80% chance. How is it possible that it didn't rain? This weather person is terrible. Well, the weather person should be able to come back and say, well, what I really told you is there's a 20% chance it's not going to rain. Are pollsters the weather people of politics? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. They are not the four-day weather forecasters, okay? You know, those people that are like, here's the seven-day forecast. What they would tell you is, I'm going to tell you what the temperature, the wind speed, the humidity level is today. Now, we can project that out and assume if all of those things stay similar, that that is what it's going to look like seven days from now. But if something happens, we have to go back into the field and reassess the weather. And so pollsters will tell you all the time, this is just a moment in time. It is a snapshot in time that we're taking. What we do with polls, though, and what the organizations like 538 and others do is project that out, right? Is to say, okay, assuming all things being equal, if X candidate is ahead by this amount, and another poll says the same thing, and another poll says the same thing, and another poll says the same thing, or similar thing, we're going to make an assumption that this person is currently ahead, and that as such, there's X percent chance that they will win. Then new data comes in, and that alters the math, and now they say, well, now there's a Right? There's a 52% chance. Oh, there's a 67% chance. Now, again, your brain 
anytime you hear something over 50 goes, well, that's going to happen. Except in reality, we know that a 47% chance of something happening is pretty high. Even a 30% chance of something happening is not that outlandish. We're asking a lot more of political polling than it is able to give us. It is not meant to be a precise tool. This is not what NASA would use to put together their instruments. It is giving you a snapshot. So if you are looking at a poll in a state that we know historically has been incredibly close, presidential candidates, statewide candidates winning by one point, two point, three points, year after year after year, Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, nobody's blown it out in those states in a long time in a competitive race. So if a poll says that I am ahead by two points and you're my opponent and you win by four points, we say, well, the polls were so wrong. Yeah, people are going to be like, the polls lied to us. Or maybe you won by one point. The point being, we know that there's a margin of error somewhere between four and six points. So I could win by anywhere from six. You could win by three. That is within the realistic frame. And that's what we have to appreciate. So there is a way when we say, oh, can the polls be fixed? Are the polls always going to be wrong? I think what we have to do is come in and say, we know we're living in a world in which two things are true. One, we are more polarized than ever. Two, we are more calcified in that polarization than ever, or at least in our lifetimes. So we should expect when we are in a state or a district that is competitive, Wisconsin, that is a 50-50 state, that someone's going to win by one point or two points or three points, but it could be this side or it could be that side. And instead of getting upset that the polls didn't exactly nail it, we say, look, based on everything we're seeing, we can expect that X candidate is going to win because not only do we have polling, but we have all of these other factors, right? We have the political environment. We have the quality of the campaign. We have the type of candidate that's running. We have maybe some other X factor. There's something going on in the state. There's something else on the ballot. Things like that that could help to be the reason that the race ends up tipping to another candidate. But to just look at that poll and say, well, the poll says that they're going to win by four and they lost by one. Well, the polls are wrong. I think that is... Um, really missing what it is that polling is supposed to do and what it can do. Do we need to change the way we're thinking about polling? Like the example I can think of is sort of sports just because of the numbers of it all, not in that entertainment way, because that always makes me feel kind of weird because it's like, okay, these are our actual lives. But I remember one year there was like looking at 538 because I was doing an office uh, March Madness bracket and being like, who do they think is going all the way and doing one of my brackets totally based on that. And when I tell you, I have never had a bracket get busted so quickly <laughs> in my lifetime where I was just like, oh, I lost $20. That's great. But I mean, sports are more of a thing of chance. Like now I'm getting to football. Like, okay, what if Pat Mahomes gets injured? Please God, don't let that happen. But there are so many factors. Like, was it cold that day? Was it, is that how we should be thinking about polling more? 
Well, we should be. That's a, I actually think it's a good way to think about it, again, in places where we know the races have always been close, right? So one or two points, you're right. It's literally the difference between Milwaukee having X percent turnout and Milwaukee mm. having Y percent turnout or the certain counties outside of another big city or in the rural areas turning out at X level or Y level. For example, Pennsylvania. How did Joe Biden win Pennsylvania versus how did Hillary Clinton lose it or Donald Trump win it in 2016? And it wasn't just one thing, right? It wasn't just, as you said, it's Mahomes gets injured and there you go. But like sports, I think politics is like sports in this way, which is, I'll use baseball because I know that a little bit better. If somebody hits a home run, it's a walk-off home run and the game is over, right? And you say, well, that person won the game. You go, well, but there were eight other innings. Yeah, yeah. And remember when this guy dropped the ball? And remember when this person struck out? Every single inning had something happen that could have changed the outcome of that game. And so this is where I think we really have to appreciate the reality of our politics today. Fewer people than ever are willing to split their tickets, are willing to vote against what they identify as their party identification, even if they don't like the candidate who is the nominee from their party, they will defend that candidate and vote for that candidate, not because they feel loyal to the, that person or the party, but because they're so worried about what the other party is going to do if they win. Our politics has become in some ways so predictable because if you have fewer people willing to split their tickets, then we know we're gonna be talking about the same five or six states if for presidential elections and the same handful of congressional races year after year after year. But it's also incredibly unpredictable. So it's, it's both predictable and unpredictable because if 10,000 votes is the difference between a candidate winning a state, right? Out of 6 million votes cast, 10,000 votes is a difference between winning and losing, then every election is going to feel like one side or the other is wrong in terms of the polling. If you win by 1,000 votes, you're still a winner. But boy, if you say, well, the polls got it wrong because they said the other person was going to win, you say, well, okay, but a thousand votes spread out and now suddenly <laughs> a different way or a hundred people decided to show up to vote in 10 different precincts that day that nobody expected to. That's it. That's the difference between winning and losing versus, again, in the olden days, the harder thing to do was to predict where you're going to win and lose seats when people were more willing to say, yeah, I'm upset about X issue. And so I'm going to turn out and vote against this candidate, or I'm going to vote for this candidate, or I'm really inspired by the vision of this candidate, even though that candidate is not of my party. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to get into why it's always Democrats who seem to have the most issues with polling numbers ahead of elections. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. 
With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Welcome back to The Weeds. I'm Jonquilyn Hill here with Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report. So, Amy, aside from 2012, why is it mostly the Democrats who overperform in the polls ahead of an election? Do we know why? Yeah, it's a great question. So in 2016... The organization of pollsters got together after the campaign and they did deep research into this and they came back and they said, okay, look, here's what we think happened. We really missed the fact that voters, especially specifically white voters, are divided by education politically. And for the first time, we're seeing a real divergence in white voters who have a college degree and white voters who don't have a college degree and how they voted in this election. Historically, have voter, have white people stayed together as yes. voters? Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. We talk yeah. about the black vote and the Latinx vote all the time, but... But the white vote was like the white yeah. vote. Yeah, right? yeah. Now, there, were, there was a gender difference, right? So you'd say mm, white yeah. women, white yeah. men. There was, and there still is, religiosity is important too. Yeah. Evangelical, not evangelical. White Catholic versus white Protestant, right? So those were the sort of default lines. And and I don't want to get too, but well, this is the weeds. I can get too deep in the weeds, but... Um, yeah, let's get into the weeds. <laughs> I, I have a, a, a source that I talk to all the time who I think is, is really brilliant on this stuff. And, and this person argues that we really should spend more time, specifically when we're talking about white voters, on evangelical versus non-evangelical, because the evangelical vote is so 
consistent on gender, income, education, right? You you prioritize evangelical over all those other things. So there's not the gaps that you see when you go to non-evangelical voters on education, on gender, on income, et cetera. Okay, that was a side note. White voters, you could break down by different types of characterizations, but education really wasn't one of them. In the era of Trump, that became a very important distinction. So after 2016, Polster said, okay, we're going to now make sure that we wait by education. We can't have too many white people with college degrees in our samples. We have to make sure we have enough white people in our samples who do not have college degree. Oh, okay. okay. So then... 2018 comes and goes, and you know what? The polling was pretty good. Now, there were a couple of misses here and there, but it was actually pretty good. As I like to say, the best election nights for the Cook Political Report are when we are not surprised. (laughs) Because our job is the position of like projecting and forecasting. And if we are surprised on election night, that's a problem. Nothing surprised us on election night. So it was like all is right with the world. We corrected it. We figured it out. It's easy. Just do education. And then comes 2020. Oh, no. What did we get wrong here? And there wasn't an easy answer to that. And there's been a lot of both self-reflection, deep dives, analysis. The fundamental issue seems to be this, that even as people were building their models to include the right number of college, non-college white voters and Republicans and Democrats, but specifically they were getting the wrong kinds of those voters, right? And by that, I mean, if you say, I need a sample that has 68% non-college white people, and you come back with a sample that has 68% non-college white people, okay, but the people who are more willing to answer the poll, more willing to participate in a survey are different from the people who were not willing. They are equal demographically, or they they both fill that, they check that box. The folks who were less willing to answer the surveys were also more likely to be Trumpier, right? More supportive of Trump. Is it a distrust? I think of, I mean, if you, distrust in the media begets distrust in voting and distrust in democracy and it all kind of gums back to that yeah yeah look you have that distrust too like are you going to really click on a link that comes to you as a text even if it says i'm from the siena college new york (laughs) times poll right you're going to be like are you or am i clicking onto some russian bot and they're going to take all the money from my bank account right like yeah yeah okay so there's that level of distrust and then it is true if you fundamentally think that the the quote-unquote elites and the mainstream media are out to get not only Donald Trump, but people like me, people who identify with Donald Trump, people like me who've been left out of the conversation in mainstream media forever. No one cares about us. No one talks about us. Of course, I'm not going to answer a poll if I get a question from them because what's to trust about them? The second is I think Donald Trump appeals to a group of people who, in general, distrust everything. It wasn't that they were Trump 
believers, you know what I mean? Like the the true Trump believers who are like, that's right. You know, since he came onto the scene, they've become less trusting of all of those institutions I mentioned. I'm talking about people who never trusted these institutions from the beginning. These are folks who believe that everything is out to get them. Everything's a setup. It's corporations are screwing us. So's the government. So's mainstream media. Everything is corrupt. I'm just not going to participate because why should I bother? The two parties are exactly the same. These politicians, they're, they're all liars. And then Trump came to the scene and had them, you know, they, they saw in him someone who had a similar temperament, someone who also was saying, you guys are all suckers. America's a sucker. We keep falling for all the same kind of politicians and their lies. We keep giving money to foreign countries who don't treat us well that fed into that. Now, getting those people to participate in a survey, <laughs> if they think that everything's rigged in the first place, is really hard to do. So the other thing we have been learning, and this is especially true in 2020, is that Latino voters, the group of voters that historically have been going 70-30, 65-35 for Democrats year after year after year, and we would say year after year after year, remember, this is not a monolithic group. Remember, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. there are all kinds of people yeah. in all kinds of places. And sure enough, oh, my gosh, how did Democrats lose South Texas? It's like 80 percent Latino. How did Democrats lose South Florida? It's like 80 percent Latino. We, we Yeah, because there's a big difference between like someone who's the child of Cuban immigrants and someone who's like a fifth generation Chicana New Mexican. Like they have they have these different experiences. That's right. They have different experiences. And if you are in the Rio Grande Valley, there's a really good chance that someone you know or someone in your family actually works for Border Patrol. Mm. That's your economic livelihood. Right. And these are people that are in your community. So when we have conversations even about the border and immigration, that's a very different conversation in the Rio Grande Valley than it is in New York or in Chicago or whatever. That's piece A. Piece B is that it's not just where you live. It's also generationally critical. And just fundamentally, I just think there was an assumption, remember, you have the polling data and then you have modeling data, right? And modeling data is, you know, you're basing it off past election performances. And so I think some of the assumptions going into this election, especially in states or areas that have a significant Latino population is, okay, well, let's see, if we win Latinos normally 60-40 or 70-30 and more of them come out to vote, then they're going to split 60-40 or 70-30, Right. But what happens if you turn out more of them, including people who maybe they've never voted before because they're the same kind of people I talked about earlier. They didn't trust the system. They don't really believe it was important to vote or for whatever reason. Now they're engaged, but they're not voting 60, 40, 70, 30. What if they're voting 50, 50? Yeah, right? because they're the people who are only turning out for Trump. It, it, it feels kind of like what we saw in 08. 08 was kind of like the first election where I was a real conscious adult. Um, and there were so many people who were like, I'm voting for the first black president. So I'm voting for the first time. And it's it, I, it's it's much different. But it also is people will come out for their person. And every election has a different coalition. So 
there's a, I think is a Greek phrase, um, a man can never cross the same river twice. He is not the same and the river is not the same. So election to election, no, no election is the same river. There are different types of people coming and going into the electorate all the time. Um, people who sit out one election who come in for another election. Literally people who can vote for the first time show up. So much of it, too, is who sits out and who chooses to get in is really the key to so much of our politics. What motivates somebody who may be registered to vote but hasn't voted in a few years to come out and vote is important. So I think if you look at just the whole host of issues here between getting the quote-unquote wrong types of Republicans, or we could call them white Trump-leaning voters, making assumptions about the Latino vote that turned out to not be true. You put all of that together in, in a high turnout election where we know that so many of these states will be decided by one or two points. And well, they're there you go. You get you kind of get what you get. Well, so it's common knowledge, you know, that people show up more for a general election than they do for midterms. And also, I mean, if we're talking about a changing river, one very different thing about this river is that Trump is not in it. He is not on the ballot. He's not running like, you know, he's not involved on that level. How is is that is that playing a role in what we're seeing right now? That's what people had hoped, right? That it's most simplistic form, the answer for why were 2016 and 2020 wrong was, well, those were Trump years. And so let's just hope when he's not on the ballot, things kind of go back to normal, right? We, we, uh, we appreciate and understand the electorate in a different way, except that 2018, we had record turnout. So even with without Trump on the ballot, his very presence, in this case, in the White House, helped to motivate people who normally don't turn out in midterm elections. In fact, the reason Democrats won in 2018 was not because of the fact that more of their voters who voted for Clinton turned out. It's because voters who didn't show up in 2016 turned out and voted Democratic, right? So they brought new people into the river. Interesting. So could the lack of Trump also hurt Democrats? Versus like helping the GOP. Okay, so see. So I think Trump was able to do two things at once. His presence helped to motivate Democrats, but it also meant it motivated his base. Mm. Because a midterm election traditionally is really bad for the party in the White House because the voters in that party that hold the White House tend to not be as interested and engaged in the election. One, because we won. We're getting what we're getting, right? You don't feel a You're threat. taking your victory lap. You know, you have the Stanley Cup and you're traveling all... I don't know what it is with me and sports analogies. I'm not even a sports girly. You're really... You've gotten... And let me just tell you, you've gotten hockey, <laughs> basketball, and football. I have no idea. I'm not this person. Anyone can tell you. I mean, that is... You've hit at them all. And then I put baseball in there. Boom. So... Think about it not just as the Stanley Cup, but think about it this way. What is more motivating to you? Like, what gets you to jump out of bed in the morning that you're really 
feeling complacent and happy or you're really angry about something, right? Like, oh my God, I'm so angry. Gotta fix that. Or you're scared. Like, fear and anger are the best motivators, unfortunately. Oh, that's depressing. Isn't it? Oh my God. But it explains a lot. Explains a lot. So who is angry and fearful? The, The people who lost because they look up every day on the news and they see the person that they dislike in charge, they see policies being implemented that they are really upset with. And more important, they feel like their version of America is losing to the other party's version of America. So they come out and vote. The other side doesn't come out and vote. But this year, I think we're also going to see a record turnout because of two things. One, the presence of Donald Trump, who is still there, Right. He's not in the White House, but he's still incredibly active, not just because he's out campaigning, but because we have the January 6th commission, because we have Mar-a-Lago, because we have the Fulton County D.A., because we have New York. You know, we just every day he's still in the news. Right. So I'm interested. And, you know, maybe you don't have this answer. Maybe this is me asking you to tell the future. And what I've learned today is that polls cannot do that. Um, (laughs) But with that Trump presence, then who right now should have faith in the polls? Should Should the Republicans have faith in the polls? Should the Democrats? I mean, it sounds like the Trump factor is still there where Republicans turn out and also Democrats turn out because they don't like Trump. Like, should anyone be believing these numbers right now? Right now, when you talk to campaigns and the people who are doing the private polling, Democrats and Republicans do see some of the races differently. Um, And so they have different expectations, again, internally, because they have access to more information than any of us do. And that a consumer of the news i.e. someone who goes and logs on to one of these aggregation sites or is looking at the public polling, will ever have access to. So there is some disagreement out there as to whether the public polls are mirroring what the campaigns are seeing in their own campaign. That, I think, is another important thing to remember, is if you think about all the polling that's going on and the modeling that happens, data analytics, big data, all of that is happening in these campaigns to a degree that is, it's significant. A significant amount of money and effort goes into these analytics and this polling data that we, you and I, and anybody else listening here will never get a chance to see. So what we get a chance to see are polls done for public consumption. It's not to say that these are pollsters who are trying to mislead or are pushing an agenda, I think that, especially if we're talking about some of these polls that have been around a long, long time, the NBC poll, like the Wall Street Journal poll, and then some of these colleges and universities that are doing polling, you know, they're doing it as a way to sort of put information out into the public sphere, but we have a limited amount of it, right? Even though we can say, oh my God, there are too many polls, there actually aren't many polls, right? Like we're not seeing as much data as everybody else is seeing, but it it does give us a ballpark, right? It allows us to say, yes, the race here in X state is within two or three points either way. But 
to say that it's getting it exactly on the right side or the going in the right direction, that's what our challenge is. So I think if you are looking at the polling and you say, well, what should I as a consumer take away from all the data that's coming at me? Um, I do two things. The first is to look at the trend line, not what the number is, but most of these these aggregation sites do this where they'll show you the the number, right? The head-to-head number. Someone's at 48%, someone's at 46% and show all the different polls, but then we'll show the trend line of red and blue. And if what you're seeing is the blue line keeps going up and the red line keeps going down, that gives you a pretty good sense of, you know, where what what we might expect in the future. Doesn't mean that the blue line will overtake the red line, but it certainly suggests that's a possibility, more so than if it the, the lines really never move, right? They don't they don't diverge that much or they they never really come to a point of of coming together. The other thing that I spend most of my time looking at is not the gap between one person's vote and the other person's vote, the margin, right? Somebody's up by five points, someone's up by seven, but look at the total vote that they're getting. So, for example, let's look at a state like Pennsylvania. For months, there were polls that said, oh, my gosh, the Democrat, John Fetterman, he's ahead by 11 points. He's ahead by 15 points. Okay, that's a not a helpful metric because there is no way in this day and age that a Republican candidate who is well-funded in a big key Senate campaign is only going to get 41% of the vote. That's just not going to happen, especially when you dig into it and you find part of the challenge for that Republican candidate is there were a lot of Republicans who were saying they were undecided. But we know that at the end of the day, those voters, they're going to end up back with the Republican, right? So then I look at, all right, if the candidate ahead is at 46%, how does that match up with where the president's approval rating is in that state. The other thing we know historically is that opinions about the president are incredibly important in how voters perceive the candidate of that president's party. If you go back and you look at 2018, there was not one state that a Republican won where Donald Trump's approval rating was under 48%. Oh, that's... That feels much more... Doesn't that seem make a lot more sense? That feels like a better guide to me for yes. some reason. So think about it this way. And this is why people were scratching their head. This is where the whole are the polls wrong started, okay? Especially on the Senate side. All right, how does this make sense? How can, in a poll, which we would see from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, for example, how can Joe Biden be at 38% job approval rating in that state, and yet Raphael Warnock, the incumbent Democratic senators at 46. That just doesn't make any sense. How can he be outpolling the president by that much? I think it's for two reasons. One, Warnock is the incumbent, so you get some of the benefit there. Two, part of the reason that Biden's job approval rating is as low as it is, is because a lot of Democrats are saying to pollsters, do you think he's doing a good job? No. Oh, oh yeah. A lot of yeah. people who voted for Joe Biden are like, no, I think he's actually like, I'm not happy with how he's doing things. Or I think he's kind of old. You know, he's not following on his promises. Are you going to vote? Okay, right? Now those same people, are they going to ever vote for a Republican? No way. 
We're not going to vote for a Republican, even though they're like, eh, I don't think Biden's doing that great of a job. Now, we know that in midterm elections, if the president's not that popular in one state, under 50 percent, let's say, or under 45 percent, there are candidates who have succeeded despite this unpopularity. But usually we're talking about four or five points better, right? So let's say the president's at 45 percent in your state. Can you do five points better? Are there five percent of the voters out there who are like, I don't really like the president that much, but yeah, I'm willing to vote for somebody of his party. Yeah, that's that's doable if you have the following things going for you. One, you two are pretty well liked. And two, your opponent is not very good. So that's where I think so much of this conversation started. The other reason I think that these Democratic candidates were running so far ahead of the president's job approval rating or opinions of the president were because they're incumbents, because they had so much money, because Republicans were in these knockout, drag out primaries, because of the presence of Donald Trump in so many of these races, that Democrats coalesced around their Democratic nominee pretty early. And Republicans did not. So that's what, over the course of the campaign, we're likely to see that come together. That is, I think, a better way to look at the polling than to say it's wrong. Or here's another example. Oh my gosh, the president is unpopular, but Democrats are winning on the so-called generic ballot question. Who do you want to control Congress, Democrats or Republicans? Mm. How could that be? How could people dislike Biden by 10 points, (laughs) and yet they say they're going to vote for Democrats by two? Okay, again, throw out this margin. What is the job approval rating of Biden? 43%. What are Democrats getting on the generic ballot? 45%. Yeah, that's not too far off. That's not too far. Yeah, that sounds... Yeah, those sound in the same neighborhood, in the same ballpark. So we're going to take another quick break, but when we get back, we're going to talk about whether or not the polls are reflective of how voters are actually feeling. We'll be right back. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Welcome back to The Weeds. I'm John Clint Hill. Before the break, we talked about state-level candidates of the same party as the president and how they sometimes fare better than the president in polling. Can you talk about that a little bit more? One thing that I I also would bring up is in sort of trying to explain, well, how is it that, right, are the polls incorrect? Why is it that these 
Democratic candidates are doing better than uh, opinions about the president. And so I went and I talked to Pew Research because they have been doing polling for so many years that I yeah. knew they'd have this data set. And I said, okay, well, can you tell me, for people who view the president somewhat unfavorably, like how did those people say they were going to vote in the upcoming election? So pollsters, when they ask opinions about the president, they usually ask a four point question. You approve strongly of that president. You somewhat approve of that president. You disapprove strongly. You disapprove somewhat. And for the most part, viewing a president strongly or somewhat favorably or unfavorably, there's not much difference in terms of how those people end up voting. I mean, if you really, if you don't like the president, you're probably going to vote against the par president's party. If you do like him, you'll vote for the president's party. But what the Pew poll showed in 2022, their most recent poll, is that Democrats were actually leading among this group of voters that consider themselves somewhat unfavorable of the president. And I asked them, well, had you ever seen anything like this before? So he's like, well, that's interesting. He went back and he looked through all the data. And going back, I think to 1998, there had never been a time where some people who viewed the president somewhat unfavorably were giving that party's candidates basically the benefit of the doubt. They were saying they were more likely to vote for the Democrat than the Republican, right? Is that because of the polarization? I do think that's a big piece of it. And I also think, remember, Joe Biden didn't come into office. It's not that he was unpopular, but it wasn't a personal popularity, right? There were a bunch of people who voted for Joe Biden because he wasn't Donald Trump. And so many of those people would consider themselves Democratic voters or would also say, oh, I could never vote for Donald Trump or I could, uh, I could never vote for a candidate like Donald Trump. But they also would not identify themselves as strong Biden supporters, right? Or they might even think, I just, I don't know, he's, I don't know, he's not that great. I can totally see a possibility where someone's like, ooh, not too keen on the president, but like, this is my best chance at student loan forgiveness or like, wow, abortion's really important to me and access. Like, uh, do we see a difference in the outcomes of candidates versus issues? Well, this is the big difference of this midterm election versus previous midterm elections. It's really hard when you're the party in power, you have everything. You have the House, you have the Senate, you have the White House to make the election about the other party, right? It's like a referendum on how did you do? It's like, it's literally like when you would take a midterm in school. What have you learned oh, from these first few? I know. I'm sorry to bring up those <laughs> I'm memories. triggered. We all have them. I'm totally triggered. <laughs> but like, what did you learn in these first few months, right? So that's what voters are doing. Like in the first couple of years, you guys have been in power. What do I think? And as I said earlier, what people think, you know, normally the party that's out of power, those voters are, what they think is everything's terrible. It's horrible, regardless of what's actually happening, but they're fired up and they want to go vote. And the party that holds the White House not as invested in voting. Okay. So if that is the case that we are so polarized, what it also means is that the likelihood that someone is either going to 
vote for a Republican, even though they don't like the president or what the president's doing, is pretty low because many of those Democrats, they're people that identify as Democrats or are worried about the Republicans. Why this year is so unique is that making an election into a choice versus a referendum is currently happening because of actions taken by the party that's not in power, mm. right? The Supreme Court decision on abortion, right? Like this is the consequence when you have Republicans in charge of Congress, this is the consequence. They, they confirm the very justices that overturned Roe v. Wade, right? There's a direct correlation between your vote on a ballot in a Senate race and the outcome of the Roe v. Wade decision. Again, that's really hard to do. If you're in charge, usually it's you're the reason that things aren't going well because you pushed forward a legislative agenda or something else through traditional governing levers that has made people upset. Or another way to think about it is what makes midterm elections so challenging for the party that's in power is that voters see them as being too consumed with their own partisan interests that they overreach and they don't spend enough time on interests to the broader electorate. Mm, mm -hmm. And that's why they lose seats. Now, in this case, it's the Republican Party that is seen as the one pushing agendas or supporting policies that are outside of popular opinion. And it's both the abortion issue as well as the presence of Donald Trump and the Republican Party's continuing embrace of Donald Trump, the election denying and all of that. So the combination of those things has helped to then make this election much less about, oh, is it just about the president and how you feel about him? Or is it a combination? It could be about the president, how you feel about him. It also can be about these issues that are not about the president, abortion and Donald Trump and the people that Donald Trump's endorsing. So you've sat in on voter focus groups. I'm kind of curious about what you're hearing and what trends you're seeing and how that's kind of coloring how you're thinking of these numbers right now. Focus groups are really important. And I think all campaigns use them for a reason. Polling is not enough. All right. Polling is a very binary you're asking people to make these binary choices, which, let's face it, humans just don't think in these ways, right? If I asked you, uh, I'm going to read you a script and say, of these issues, which is the most important? You can tell me, well, it's the economy, but I don't really know what that means. Or this issue of threats to democracy. Well, maybe to you, what the threat to democracy might be, new voting laws. Maybe to somebody else, they say, yeah, there's a threat to democracy. It's Joe Biden because he's not the rightful president. He mm. rigged the last election, right? Wow. Yeah. So, so when you get into focus groups, what you're doing is you're getting behind those numbers and understanding how people are coming to their positions and their feelings about things. What I find really interesting, especially in listening over these last couple of weeks to swing voters, many of these are people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016, but voted for Joe Biden in 2020. What they are talking about more than anything is this frustration of our partisan politics, that everything has become 
you know, just a war and they are exhausted and frustrated by it. The other thing that you pick up is just how pessimistic the public is about one, about our ability to really unify as a country, but also about when things are going to get better, when things are going to turn around economically, socially. The other thing that you pick up, and I picked up very early on, and you can hear it now everywhere, is the cost of housing. I couldn't make it through a focus group without someone organically talking about their rent and or not being able to find affordable places to live. That's so funny because your first, the first thing I thought of when you said economy was my rent and the embarrassing amount of money I'm paying on it. Right? Because I don't know when I say economy, for me, if I live in rural America, economy is, oh my God, it costs me an extra $40 to fill up my gas tank. And I drive a hundred miles every day to and yeah. from where I need to go. Right? So like yeah. that, that's a big deal for you. I don't drive anywhere, really. So the gas issue isn't as important to me as food and housing. So you get into understanding what that is. And also, I often find it's the asides that when you're you're off topic, you really find some of these things, but where you really can see how voters are cross-pressured. So in one of these groups, these were with white male voters who were considered swing voters. And they were talking about what the Biden administration and what Democrats in Congress had done, the laws that they had passed, right? What do you think about the infrastructure bill? That sounds, yeah, yeah, I think that was good. What do you think about this other bill that increased microchip processing in the country? Oh, yeah, that sounds good. What do you think about the fact that we have low jobless rate? All this is good. You know, going through like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, no, those, that's good. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like that. No, that's a good thing. And then at the end, they said, well, Tell us just overall how you feel about this, that everything that we we talked to you about, about the, what the Biden administration and, and Democrats had done. And this one guy's like, it's all good. It really is. But, you know, I, I work in the, I don't know if he's like a construction industry or some industry where, you know, he has to buy lumber. And he's like, but like, it still costs me twice as much to buy lumber today than it did a year ago. Wow. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so you can say, yeah, I think your plans are great. Yeah. I like what you're doing on prescription drugs. Yeah. I like what you did on infrastructure. I like what you did on student loans, but I literally am paying twice as much for my lumber that I was a year ago. And that's where you get to, right? Uh, getting to the heart of how voters are making, how they're making and prioritizing these decisions. Thank you so much, Amy, for taking us yeah, to the I weeds hope this on works. this. It was, it was very weedy. No, weeds are good. Guilty, you, guilty, but I know it's called weeds, so I'm okay. I feel like you are our weed whacker. Like, you just made sense Okay, I hope all. so, because it's super, super nerdy. I mean, that's why you get paid the big bucks to nerd out. That's all for us today. Thank you to Amy Walter for joining the panel. Our producer and engineer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Our deputy editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, Jonathan Hill. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Clap. 
Quad 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Quad 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.